Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to part two of this edition of the Surgical Readings Podcast featuring Dr. Sandra Kavalukas. In part one, we discussed management of perirectal abscess and diverticulitis. In part two, we discuss important concepts for treating anal fissures, Ogilvy syndrome, parastomal hernias, and malignancy of the colon, rectum, and anus. Please enjoy listening and learning. Let's move on to malignant bowel obstruction because I know that occupies a lot of uh, time for the colorectal surgeon, general surgeons. Uh, let's think about rectal cancer or distal bowel cancer. And I would ask you about your approach to diverting stomas versus attempts at resection. Uh, what are your thoughts about the patient who comes in with bowel obstruction? Yeah, it's, that's a, unfortunately an increasing problem as our, you know, especially our younger patients, uh, that are getting more rectal cancers and they're getting them very advanced, uh, continue to present. And I've been very uh, uh, happy with, I think, you know, we get them transferred from uh, smaller community centers. I very rarely see these mismanaged. Um, the first step should almost always be decompression um, of the obstruction with a stoma, however, however that may be. Obviously, if you have a distal obstruction, you can't just make an end colostomy. You're going to have to bring up either a mucus fistula or some part of the downstream part of your stoma so that you don't get a, a stump blowout from the, from the obstruction. But I think that it's it's pretty well recognized and known that that, that person's greatest chance of a long-term survival is going to rely on you getting them back on track to a normal treatment of rectal cancer. So uh, obviously, if they're obstructing, it's a pretty advanced tumor uh, for rectal cancer nowadays, um, neoadjuvant radiation at the very least, and I would say more and more, most centers are doing total neoadjuvant chemotherapy and radiation in whatever uh, order your institution does is going to be the biggest um, factor that's going to affect their long-term survival and running straight forward to resection and wrestling with a large tumor uh, and not giving them the local therapy that they need from a radiation standpoint is going to affect their recurrence rate upwards of 36%. So whenever you see somebody that comes in with a obstructing rectal cancer, the first step is give them a colostomy and get them back on track and then back up again with your staging and your total neoadjuvant therapy before you go back into their belly. Excellent thoughts. And uh, your patient with stage three disease, node positive disease, uh, who's going to need uh, chemotherapy. Uh, how do you plan your 
closing the stomas, your resection around the fact that they're going to have additional therapy? What do you tell the patient? Well, in today's um, day and age, uh, the one thing that we really like about total new adjuvant therapy is after I, the, the goal, of course, should be, you know, me as a colorectal surgeon looking to when I'm going to have to fix them next. I always plan to do sigmoid colostomies because if I'm doing an LAR, then my colostomy can be my, you know, basically the proximal conduit that I'm going to then hook up to the distal rectum. If you can't do it because of body habitus or because of whatever, the transverse loop colostomy would be your second best bet, um, though it really, I wouldn't say messes you up, but it kind of puts you in a little bit of, of a precarious spot for your next surgery because you're not going to want to lose the entire left colon as a conduit, and therefore you're going to have an anastomosis where you take down their loop colostomy, and then you're going to have an anastomosis where you put them back together just as an extra element of, um, of, of complication to that procedure. However, most rectal cancers um, are low enough that, uh, or especially if they're obstructing or they're getting radiation, whenever you go to do their definitive resection, you're gonna give them a diverting loop ileostomy. Um, the nice thing about total neoadjuvant therapy now is they get all of their chemotherapy and all of their radiation before you take them to surgery. And that way they only have their ileostomy for six weeks instead of six months, because if I were to operate on them before chemotherapy, then they have to wait until chemotherapy is over before I take their ileostomy down. So I, I think that most centers in the country are starting to adopt doing all of the chemo radiation up front uh, so that A, if you have a complication from surgery, it's not delaying their post-operative chemotherapy that they desperately need. And for a lesser point from a from a B standpoint, I guess, is that your diverting loop ileostomy will only have to be there for a quarter of the time. Since we're talking about rectal cancer, I, I, I have to ask you about your concept of watch and wait. I'm a fan of Angelita Abragama, and I know probably you're well aware of her work. So what do you do at the University of Louisville, or what are you recommending uh, for patients who have a uh, good clinical response. You may not know about their full pathological response, but how do we follow those patients if you're deciding on watch and wait? Yeah, if you're when we decide on watch and wait, there are several things, several criteria I would say that have to be met. Number one, um, we are in a different uh, patient demographic, I think, than most of the country. And being in the, I mean, Louisville is a great city and place to live, but a lot of our patients are sent to us from very rural Kentucky. Um, and you have to take into account that you are going to be watching them with either flex SIGs or flexible sigmoidoscopy or a very uh, specialized rectal cancer protocol MRI that is only done at Louisville um, and ongoing discussions at tumor board um, and Number one, I have to make sure that that patient is going to be compliant with tra the travel back and forth every three months. Uh, I have to make sure that their insurance uh, situation, there was one person I actually did want to watch and wait, but kept losing his insurance. <laughs> um, so you have to make sure that some of those extraneous factors out there are going to be well controlled so you can continue to watch and wait. Um, the second thing you want to look for is, you know, ideally, we offer it mostly in patients that are actually uh, high-risk surgical candidates. Um, I, the data is certainly there to do watch and wait, 
but I also think on the other hand, the, the younger patients that I have tried to do watch and wait um, have had uh, recurrences very early and I ended up taking them to surgery and they did have cancer back in their specimen or I've had a couple other patients that watch and wait was on the table and they didn't feel comfortable, they didn't want it. And when I took out their specimen, there was still cancer in their specimen. So the data is out there to do it, but I we are very cautious here and have I would not say that we have routinely adopted it just yet. One of the other fascinating diseases that uh, we tend to see is Ogilvy syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are multiple ways to approach that. What are your recommendations uh, for the approach to Ogilvy's? Ogilvy's, hopefully, uh, again, it will depend on the background and the presentation, but really should be a, uh, a medically managed disease when at all possible. Um, if it's a post-operative, you know, orthopedic kind of thing that you always seem to hear on your on your medical school tests or, or so be it. Um, it's a lot easier to get by with medical therapy with that. Um, always try to replete their fluids and electrolytes. Always try to make sure that you're minimizing the narcotics. Um, and then you can you know, either move to things with such as neostigmine. Um, if that doesn't work, colonic decompression. And then if that doesn't work, then you can talk about surgery. But I feel like usually when it's a short-lived kind of thing, it almost uh, routinely gets better with medical management. When it's a patient that is maybe a spinal cord injury or a recurrent nursing home, or it's it, you know it's usually somebody with multiple comorbidities and this is a chronic state of life with them, the management paradigm is still a little bit the same, but the surgical treatment at the end may be a little bit more um, uh, rapid in arriving there. So another malignancy that uh, surgeons are called to see, especially in colorectal uh, specialties, is uh, anal cancer. Um, and of course, we're uh, uh, seeing a, a preponderance of that with the HPV uh, epidemics that we see. And uh, what is your thought about uh, management with uh, anoscopy, uh, taking care of early lesions. We know that anal cancer is not primarily a surgical disease anymore like it was some decades ago, but what is your recommendation as far as uh, uh, managing these patients? We see a lot of anal cancer in Kentucky. We actually have uh, reported at a lot of our recent national meetings, the incidence rates of Kentucky, particularly HIV negative Kentucky women uh is astronomical and it's kentucky is now the second highest state in the country with anal cancer rates so i see uh quite a bit of this we don't have the etiology of this determined just yet but i expect a, a, a colorectal surgeon or a general surgeon is instrumental um especially in following these patients um the the nigra protocol is is highly successful however i do not think that most um, medical or radiation oncologists are going to be on board with doing a very good thorough digital rectal exam <laughs> um, every three months for the first three years. Uh, and so I, I stay on top of these. Anoscopy is something that I will do uh, if something feels abnormal, especially in the first you know three to six months, everything is firm uh, from the radiation changes. And, and so typically, you know, whenever you follow somebody for this, it's the, the radiation effect will continue to work for about six months. And at six months is when, as a surgeon, you need to make the, the establishment of 
Did they have cured disease? Do they have persistent disease, but not progressive? Or do they have progressive disease? So obviously if things feel soft and everything's gone and shrug your shoulders, and that's a, somebody you would do a, a digital rectal exam on every three months. If after six months, there's still an area that's firm, you, you may biopsy this and it still has some cancer in it, but it's in general not really progressing, then that's somewhere it's something we take into account the patient factors and just keep a very close eye on them until it does progress. Uh, and then progressive disease obviously would need a salvage APR. So occasionally we're asked to see patients with anal condylomata and uh, Bushke-Lowenstein tumor, which is uh, the giant anal condyloma. What is your recommendation for those patients uh, should we be more aggressive than just removing their condyloma? Uh, sometimes the giant Bushke Lowenstein, uh, we typically still will just resect. Um, there may be um, there may be indications to attempt to do some sort of radiation to, you know, downsize the tumor. Though this would have to be a different. Um, it, there would have to be probably extraneous patient factors where radiation would be the first uh, thing to do. But yes, with anal condyloma, um, Bushke Lowensteins, we typically go straight forward to resection. With uh, high grade, it's no longer AIN anymore. It's now LCIL, which is low grade squamous intraepithelial lesion or HCIL for high grade. For the HCILs and especially in HIV positive men, there is recently a, a very uh, big giant landmark study that came out that finally showed that following these patients with high resolution anoscopy and biopsies will prevent um, uh, uh, anal cancer rates. We began a discussion with some uh, management of benign diseases and I'd like to end with that. Uh, the patient with an anal fissure, uh, sometimes a, a problem. Uh, we've talked about uh, other things such as uh, Botox, uh, sphincterotomy. What is your approach to the first-time patient with a fissure? Yeah, I get also see quite a bit of these as well. So anal fissures, first, the first approach, number one, uh, almost routinely these patients are constipated. And if you do not um, treat the underlying cause of this, they will continue to repeat, uh, open up or re-tear their fissure. Um, so first, uh, this is one of those things we say fiber water all the time is kind of a, a sidebar. This is a huge, huge difference where if the patient does not get their constipation under control, um, most of your therapies are either going to be pointless or they're going to be short-lived. Uh, I do start with um, diltiazem ointment or diltiazem cream uh, is my medical management. Um, the efficacy is about equal to or maybe slightly better than nitro cream, um, but the side effects of the headache and, and orthostatic hypotension with the nitro cream is, is real and it's experienced. So I kind of will just bypass that and opt for diltiazem first. Uh, when they come back to see me in six months, uh, it, I think it's completely uh, appropriate to do either Botox or sphincterotomy, depending on your own preference. I usually tell my patients I like to make the stop at Botox because, you know, the incontinence rate with the sphincterotomy is about 7%. It's not very high, uh, but at the same time, I've had uh, remarkably um, high success rates with Botox. Just it may not completely heal the fissure, but it completely heals the pain, and that's kind of what we're set out to do. Um, so the people that I've had to do a sphincterotomy on 
uh, with failing Botox is in the single digits. Um, so that is my second stop that I make that not everybody does because a lot of people just don't feel like they have that much success with it. Um, but it is recommended as kind of our um, first or second line therapy for anal fissures. And then clearly our sphincterotomy is going to be our you know, gold standard with our healing rates of 80 to 100% of healing anal fissures. So finally, uh, Sandy, I want to ask you about your management of parastomal hernias. The, um, even in the age of mesh, uh, we still, uh, still see them. Uh, and I'm wondering how you would approach a patient uh, who has a parastomal, her parastomal hernia, uh, technique, uh, when to operate, things like this. Yeah, that's a great question because I feel like every patient that has a stoma will eventually end up with a peristomal hernia. Um, I first, uh, for as many of these that I see, I feel like 80% of them really just need reassurance that um, the, yes, you see a bulge there. Sometimes it may be painful, but really not operating on it is until it's really a problem is definitely my default. Particularly, as I always tell patients, there's no way you can fix a peristomal hernia. You can only make it smaller because you still need that hernia at the end of the day for your colostomy to go through. That's number one. Number two, when I see a patient who's had a peristomal hernia fixed already once or even two times, then you worry about how much you know mesh is in that area. Stoma sites are like gold. Um, they, it, you know, having to recite a stoma because of a bunch of mesh or erosion or whatever is not a, a path that you want to go down. So I stick to a pretty stringent, I will only repair your peristomal hernia if it is causing ongoing pouching issues, or if you keep getting repeated uh, peristomal uh, obstructions. After that, then you certainly have to look at a patient's BMI, their smoking history, and all the other comorbidities that make almost any hernia repair wildly unsuccessful. Uh, and I try to spend some time managing those things before we go to the operating room. As far as the actual operative management of it, we tend to do sugar baker repairs and laparoscopic you know, um, mesh repairs where we're putting the mesh in the abdomen and kind of making a tunnel for the colon. I will say that for Crohn's disease for peristomal hernias, um, I will technically, um, I try to more do an onlay keyhole kind of repair just because I don't trust Crohn's disease bowel. Um, we try to not put any bowel there, period, uh, or any um, mesh around there at, at all, but I think that, you know, you're going to have to, and if I'm going to have a Crohn's-related fistula mesh problem, I would rather it at least be above the fascia. Today, we've had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Sandy Kapalukas, a member of the Division of Colorectal Surgery in the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. Sandy, thank you so much for being with us today on Surgical Readings. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag Surgical Readings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org slash srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. 
Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.